Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Today on the program, we'll hear that a surge in Democratic candidates will make Wyoming's general election much more competitive. There's just really kind of a, a sense that we're coming back. What does the day-to-day look like for police officers who patrol public schools? I've done more intense police-related stuff doing this, I think, at times than I have on the street. We'll hear how thrilled everyone was to release several hundred endangered toads onto the plains of the Laramie Basin. Plus, a look at the job market for recent UW grads, and Wyoming's congressional delegation says that recent gun control efforts are misguided. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. In the wake of the tragic slayings in Orlando last weekend, gun control unexpectedly dominated Congress this week. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington on why Wyoming lawmakers think the debate is misguided. This week, Congress seems to have been jolted out of slumber, but lawmakers woke up for different reasons. For Democrats, the slaughter of 49 people at the Orlando LGBT Club was the last straw, and they're calling for overhauling the nation's lax gun laws. On Monday, the House dedicated a moment of silence to the victims, and Connecticut Congressman Jim Himes and a few other Democrats walked out of the chamber. In that moment, I realized it was just a, you know, a ritual of impotence and a ritual that, uh, in as much as it involves silence, is perfectly reflective of the gross negligence that the Congress has shown in the face of the massacre of, of, of the American people. But Wyoming lawmakers argue Democrats are trying to politicize the tragedy by making it about guns and not terrorism. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso says the shooter pledged allegiance to the Islamic State, and that's what the debate should be. ISIS uh, is what instigates this. Uh, ISIS is what eggs it on. And as long as ISIS continues to not be dealt with effectively, ISIS continues to inspire these lone wolves. So, uh, we have to deal with the standpoint of, uh, of terrorism, and that's where the discussion uh, needs to be headed. Barrasso, like presumed GOP presidential nominee Donald Trump, blames the president for the violence on U.S. soil. Those lone wolves who want to be associated with a winner uh, are more likely, in my opinion, to then become energized. And as, as long as the president fails to address ISIS in a and I think in an effective way, and he's been very ineffective, that that's going to continue to inspire additional terrorist activities. Barrasso says no community is safe until ISIS is beat back. What we know from the FBI is that there are investigations going on in all 50 states on people who have been uh, self-radicalized, and that's the huge challenge is to find out who is self-radicalized and why. But Democrats see it differently. They argue lone wolf terrorists are made more dangerous by the nation's gun laws. That's why Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy took to the Senate floor for a 15-hour filibuster until an agreement was reached to vote on gun control measures. 
While Democrats want to ban people on terrorist watch lists from buying guns, they also want stronger background checks. California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein is also pushing her measure to reinstate the assault weapons ban. If that had still been in place, it would have made purchase of this weapon uh, impossible because this is a new weapon. So it all depends. We've got more weapons now than we have people in this country. How many do we need and in whose hands should they be? But Republicans, like Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis, say efforts like that are misguided. Uh, that's unfortunate. I, I think part of the problem here is, um, is reacting to Orlando with legislation that is not well thought out. And perhaps uh, if we would take the time to visit with each other about this uh, in a setting that's not politicized, such as uh, in reaction to legislation that has been hastily drawn, uh, we might be able to come up with something that really could be workable. Lummis and other Republicans argue that they want to ban potential terrorists from getting weapons, but they say the terror watch list is currently riddled with errors, and they don't believe people wrongly put on the list are given due process in challenging it. Lummis is hoping a deal can be reached to keep guns out of the hands of domestic terrorists. Uh, the dialogue, I think, is important. Um, I think reacting to hastily drawn legislation is only going to cause us to go back to our respective corners uh, and not have the kind of thoughtful, uh, reflective dialogue that could produce uh, bipartisan legislation. Early next week, the U.S. Senate will vote on a series of gun-related items, but they're all expected to fail. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. While many Wyoming voters are paying attention to the U.S. House race, the state's legislative races will be among the most competitive in the nation. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports. Getting people to run for the legislature can be a challenge. But this year, Wyoming has had no problem attracting candidates. In 2014, Democrats made a strong push to get more people to run, and they came up with 32 legislative candidates. This year, the number is 64. Even Republicans have more candidates running than two years ago. In all of the areas that we look at competitiveness, this year, Wyoming is actually much more competitive than the U.S. average. That's Jason Swadley from Ballotpedia. He says over the last three election cycles, the winner of the primary typically went uncontested. 68% of the time, um, whoever makes it to the general election won't see a competitor from the other major party. This year, it's going to be 25%. Which means the vast majority of the legislative seats will be contested in the general election. But there's also a lot of competition in the primary. Ballotpedia notes that 20 incumbents are facing primary opposition in the House, and two Republican senators are also facing primary opposition. Bree Jones of the Equality State Policy Center says that's good news. Competition is always positive for democracy would be the position that I come from. Joan says she's heard that a number of the newcomers want to finally get Medicaid expansion passed. I think there's a lot of candidates that are talking about it, and um, we know that a majority of Wyomingites support Medicaid expansion, so the continued refusal on the legislature's part is very confusing and I think very frustrating to a lot of people. Wyoming Republican Party Chairman Matt Michaeli says the state's financial difficulties have also convinced a number of people to run. There is kind of a special sense of 
hey, my state needs me right now, and this is my chance to step forward. And the candidates that I've talked to and visited with, that's that's been the common theme, is this is my chance to, to give back to our state and to help it at a critical point. Laramie resident John Gargileski is one of the many young Democrats in the state that has gotten involved in party politics. He's not running for the legislature, but he has been elected to serve as a national committee man. He credits the excitement around the Hillary Clinton-Bernie Sanders Democratic presidential primary for firing up the party and for getting people interested in running for office. Gargileski agrees that the failure of Medicaid expansion has also played a role when it comes to getting people to run in legislative races. He says optimism is high. There's just a, really kind of a, a sense that we're coming back. And and the, the effect of that is when someone calls you up and says, hey, we need somebody to run in your district, people are volunteering rather than saying, uh-oh. And they need that optimism because Wyoming's legislature is heavily dominated by Republicans, which is not a surprise since most registered voters identify themselves with the GOP. Currently, only four of the 30 state senators and nine of the 60 state representatives are Democrats. Gargileski says getting more candidates into legislative seats starts with strong candidates. And he says the party has come up with several this year. He adds it's important that they frame the debate and get people to hear their point of view. Kerry Drake is a longtime Wyoming political reporter and a columnist for the online newspaper Wyofile. He's fascinated by the high Democratic numbers, but also by all the contested Republican primary races. Drake predicts that there will be a number of new faces holding legislative seats in 2017. I think this is a year where, you know, nationally there's been a lot of frustration with candidates and incumbents, and I I think you're going to see that here in Wyoming, too. Political observers say it should be an exciting year for Wyoming voters. For Wyoming Public Radio... I'm Bob Beck. When we come back, we'll hear what kind of a job market recent UW grads are facing and discuss the interesting history of Union Wireless. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Wyoming is facing difficult economic times. Last year, the state lost 6,500 jobs, mostly in oil and gas. And things haven't gotten much better this year. State government is making major reductions, and even Wyoming Medical Center in Casper cut 58 positions. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports that right now is a tough time for University of Wyoming graduates to enter the job force particularly if they want to stay in the state. This May, over 1,400 students graduated from the University of Wyoming. For many of those students, this is their first time entering the professional workforce. Tom Gallagher is the manager of research and planning for the Wyoming Department of Workforce Services. It's his job to take a hard look at the numbers. Having to tell this story is not a pleasant thing. It's really difficult to see the struggles that people have. Gallagher says the job market stopped seeing growth during the first quarter of 2015 and has since continued to decline. Last month, unemployment was at 5.5 percent. 
That's slightly higher than the national rate of 5%. So I'm glad I'm not graduating this spring and with the intent in mind of going to work in Wyoming because it's going to be difficult. But not everyone feels this way. No, I think I would be excited if I were a May 16 graduate. That's Joe Kitka. She's the director of the Center for Advising and Career Services at the University of Wyoming. The center on campus helps students prepare for the job market. The economic news in Wyoming hasn't been great, but we have had students that have found opportunities in the state, which is good as well. Kitka says a lot of those students were hired as teachers and nurses. Nursing remains strong, but school districts are now facing budget cuts, which could impact the number of teachers hired in the future. Gallagher says there's another issue that could make finding a job difficult in Wyoming. Students aren't the only ones entering the job market. He says so are those workers that have been recently laid off. We know that there is hiring going on, but the competition by experienced workers is very, very stiff. Gallagher says the few available openings are likely to be given to those workers with experience. Ultimately, there are too many unemployed people and not enough jobs. But Gallagher says outside of Wyoming, prospects are brighter. Fortunately, though, the economies of states right next door, like Colorado and Utah, they're presently and they have for some time been vying for number one and number two spots in terms of growth in the country. In fact, Denver is the fastest-growing large city in the nation right now. For that reason, Colorado has a very different problem than Wyoming. Kitka says they have a supply and demand issue. There aren't enough people to take the jobs that the state has available. But Texas is another state that is hiring. That's where Akash Gondalia is going. The Cheyenne native got a degree in electrical engineering from UW. He has taken a job in Dallas with Texas Instruments. For an industry like semiconductors, there's not a whole lot going in Wyoming. Gondalia says he took the first and only job offer he got. But it was always a goal of his to leave the state after college. He says he's lived in Wyoming his whole life and wanted to find out what it's like to live in a city. However, Gondalia does not rule out a return to the state. That dream job did, you know, show up that was close to to family. It'd be pretty hard to turn that down. Pretty close with my family. Got plenty of friends around here. So it'd be pretty difficult to turn that down. Wyoming officials launched a big push to keep UW graduates in the state. But with the current economic climate, students are forced to go elsewhere. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. In 1914, John Woody started a Wyoming phone company that is now known as Union Wireless. These days, it's a multi-million dollar corporation and one of the state's great success stories. Author Terry Delbane has written a book about the company called A Phone Where the Buffalo Roamed. I asked him why this phone company survived for over 100 years while others have faltered. It was because that the the family, the the founders of the company... uh, they were they were willing to work at a loss for close to 75 years. Is it true that they just really didn't start making money until about the 80s when they expanded and then, then of course, came wireless? That's right. That's when the red ink turned to black. You know, up until then, you know, of course, there's money coming in and all that, but it's all getting sunk back into the company, improved services, the ad add subscribers, things like that. They're building it very much like uh, somebody might build a ranch. 
and uh, and build the company. When they first started the company, uh, they they would hook up to a local exchange or something, and they would offer stock options, things like that. So, you know, it, it took decades for uh, for Woody to actually be chairman of the board of the company, because the stockholders were all the uh, people from these other exchanges that had been brought into this union, hence the name. It's so amazing to me that it's been basically this one family for so many years that, that really kind of kept the place running. I mean, how hard was it for them? Well, it, it was pretty tough. They, they had some tough times, and, you know, they're, they were uh, running a, a small ranch operation on the side and, and growing their own food as well. And, uh, you know, they, start, they started out... Very small, just family only. Then eventually they started adding uh, occasional employees. And then as you know, once you have kids and they grow up, they go in and they they help uh, operate the company and learn learn the ropes. So it's you know it's a very tenuous line that they they had to get through. There a lot of tough times. You think all the economic up and downs for Wyoming the boom and bust cycles, you know. In the boom cycle, everybody wants telephone service. In the bust cycle, they would spend the time improving the system and, and, and trying to build it out for when the next boom came along. It, it does seem to me, and I, I think I got this from your writing, especially the boom maybe in the 70s that went into the 80s, that that really was important for the company because it, it seemed to allow them to expand. Is that right? Yeah, it uh, you know, Flame, Flaming Gorge was the was the the project that really really solidified the company. But that that boom as well uh, helped helped them to expand services. And well, you know, you know how Sweetwater County was at that time. It was just crazy, and they were, they just couldn't hook people up fast enough. Terry, as you look then, you know, we, we head into this time of deregulation and then certainly increased technology and that sort of thing. Was there a thought that the company might not make it through that? Well, one of, one of the interesting things in, in, in listening to the company folks talk about, they were always trying to stay on the, on the cusp of the technological changes and to be part of that. So they, they positioned themselves very well. So... Uh, the children, the children seem to like to become engineers that deal in communications, and that, that helps them to do that. Uh, they just they're uh, they're working with the the telecommunications organizations. They're they're playing a leadership role in there. So for for a little company in the middle of nowhere, they've they've got a lot more clout than you'd think. You, you think it's the small business in Wyoming that people sort of forget about? We talk about uh, a number of small businesses in our state that have existed and have done well over the years, but is this the one that maybe people don't think about right off the top of their head? They, they probably don't, and you know what they probably don't realize is how big union has become. They're actually providing service internationally now, and I know they've been talking about uh, breaking into Asia. And when I was working on the book a couple of years ago, uh, one of the board members was in Portugal arranging some uh, data sharing deal. It, it strikes me that if you would have probably heard some of the company folks 10, 15 years ago talking about where they wanted to be now, 
we'd have probably laughed at them and said, well, you know, good luck. But it's it's been really surprising, hasn't it, uh, how far they've come? It is. And when you think, in, in 1948, things were so bad that they they actually did offer the company to AT&T for a dollar. And got turned down. Yeah, and AT&T gave them the back of the hand, didn't think people out here in uh, Sweetwater County and the areas around were uh, were worth it, the time it takes. So uh, they they dug in and they just worked harder, and and now they're you know they have all these sweetheart deals with AT and T for different things. They picked up exchanges from AT and T. It's 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 interesting to see the history of how the company developed. It's kind of it's kind of like homesteading the airwaves. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the book is called a, a Phone Where the Buffalo Roamed, Collecting Neighbors in America's Outback. It's about Union Telephone, now known as Union Wireless. Uh, an interesting read about a small business here in Wyoming that has certainly grown. Terry, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Coming up on the program, part two of our series on cops in schools and the secret lives of army laundresses. This is Open Spaces. listening to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. As more schools make safety and security a priority, school resource officers, or SROs, have become the fastest growing job in law enforcement. External threats are rare, and most research suggests that putting cops in schools actually has a negative impact on education. But proponents say the good officers do for schools and communities can't always be measured. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank spent a day with some SROs and has this report. When Josh Hudson became a school resource officer eight years ago, it wasn't by choice. No one else at the Green River Police Department wanted the job, so as the new guy, he was assigned it. When it was mentioned to me at first, I was like, uh, honestly, I thought it was like, a, you know, you just sit around and babysit kids all day and it, it's just boring, nothing like regular police work when really it actually is. And I've done more intense police-related stuff doing this, I think, at times than I have on the street. Hudson's day has just begun, and he's already headed in his patrol car to investigate a case of suspected child neglect and to confront some students about a serious bullying incident. Just now, before I came here, a kid actually took pills before he came to school this morning. He already told me yesterday he was being bullied on the internet. Some kids said, you should just kill yourself, things like that. So we're pulling up to the high school here. and As you can see, that's where Officer Yeager parks his car, usually right up front. He wants people to know he's there and he's in the school. Officer Ken Yeager is the other SRO. He and Hudson cover the whole school district, but Yeager is stationed here at Green River High School, and Hudson spends most of his time at Lincoln Middle School. High school vice principal Dennis Freeman says there's a reason so many schools are hiring SROs. 
They can do things that it's difficult for us to do or time-consuming for us to do. But the biggest thing is forming relationships with the kids. A lot of these kids need to have positive relationships with guys like cops. While Hudson disappears to meet with someone from the Department of Child and Family Services, Officer Yeager makes his daily rounds. You know, we really don't have that many fights here, and I think a lot of it has to do with the space that you got to walk. Hey, how's it going? Yeager seems to have a good rapport with most of these high school kids, like senior Will Valdez. Or him? I like him. He's pretty nice. He's always willing to do what's best for everyone. You ever had run-ins with him and uh, you know, getting in trouble with him? Yeah, I passed an undercover cop going 80 on Upland. <laughs> it was right out of the parking lot. The percentage of students cited by law enforcement at Green River High School is average for Wyoming. But Wyoming's rates remain double the national average. Yeager says this job isn't for every cop. I think it does take the right personality to You can put somebody in here that's real kind of harsh. It won't work as well, you know. You can't make them feel like they're a criminal just for a simple mistake. Trained SROs like Yeager see themselves not only as law enforcement, but also as counselor and teacher. Yeager tries to build strong relationships with these kids so that they trust police and so he can get information to help solve crimes for the department. A lot of times they have information for you that you'd never think they'd know about. After his rounds, Officer Yeager sits at his desk and talks about how he works closely with school counselors to get kids help with mental health. Kids this age are pretty emotional and they have some pretty severe issues, so I think that's one of the most important things I could do. He gets a disturbing call from the principal at a nearby elementary school. And she has shared with her sister that her mom's boyfriend plays games with them with that involves inappropriate touching. Okay. So we're not going to talk to the little girl here. We're calling you for you to decide what to do. All right. I'll get back with you here in a few. All right. Then Officer Hudson returns from his meeting. Both men say this is a lot of what they do, investigate things like child neglect and abuse. Yeager says citing students for crimes is more rare. Writing a citation ticket or, or writing a report to forward up to a county attorney, you know, for some type of a charge. I'd like to say we never do, but there's a lot of times, you know, fights in halls we always do reports on and crashes, theft. Hudson, who patrols the middle school, says he learned the hard way over the years that citing students isn't always the best way to go. I mean, on the street, you got to be consistent. You can't just ticket one and not the other. And here, it's a little different. Yeah, you got to make those calls. And, and for me, it's, is it going to make it worse or better? And how are the parents, the parents who are right here, and I'll take care of this myself? Okay, great. You know, I think that's way better than me getting involved, uh, unless it's been ongoing or serious. Nobody, including Hudson, wanted this SRO job when he started. But now it's a respected and coveted position in the department. And Hudson's just learned it won't be his much longer. It's going to be hard uh, as we're going to start rotating our position, which we hadn't ever done that. Um, so starting next summer, I'll be going back onto the street and we'll give new opportunities to new officers. Hudson says working with the school and the students has been more rewarding than he could have imagined. Uh, so no, I absolutely love it. And I, at any moment, if they needed me to take it again, I'd love to have it back. But yeah, that's probably the, that would be the hardest part of the whole thing. Uh, if it weren't for the relationship with the kids, it'd be a, a lot easier. Many question whether cops should even have these kinds of relationships with students. Hudson admits that when he started patrolling the schools, he may have been doing some kids more harm than good. He hopes whoever takes over can do what's best for students. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank.
When someone is in a suicidal state, often the first professional responders they see are law enforcement. This is true nationwide, but it is especially the case in Wyoming, where the suicide rate is double the national average, and which lacks the mental health resources of more urban areas. For a decade now, Wyoming has been using crisis intervention training to better prepare law enforcement. But the program is slow to spread, especially in rural areas. Earlier this year, Miles Bryan looked into this issue and filed this report. A few weeks after Cody police officer Seth Horn went through crisis intervention training, he went out on a call to see a man who was potentially suicidal. Started speaking with this person. Some things were kind of lining up with the report that we got. And then using the training, you know, I asked some very specific questions. Before CIT, Horn might have asked something like, are you planning on hurting yourself? But after the 40 hours of training with other cops and mental health workers, he knew now that that was a vague question. Some suicide methods might not be thought of as physically painful by the person in crisis. So Horn just flat out asked, are you thinking about killing yourself? The man said yes. Those kinds of questions are uncomfortable to ask until you start doing it regularly, and then it it just kind of flows into the conversation. So it's, it's little things like that with the training that I think make a difference. But when crisis intervention training was first introduced to cops in the small towns of Cody and Powell, there was serious resistance. Brett Lara is a Powell detective. Yeah, I just, I had no interest whatsoever. I will admit that, and I can say that I was very wrong. After six years of seeing the results of CIT, officers in Cody and Powell are big proponents of the training. And the way that it was developed in those towns has become a model for implementing CIT in other small communities. But it's been a long road to get here, and it didn't start with the cops. Teresa Humphreys-Wadsworth is the director of statewide suicide prevention for the Prevention Management Organization of Wyoming. Back in 2009, she was working at a mental health center in Cody. There wasn't much to work with. At that time, in 2009, we didn't even have a psychiatrist. She says Park County, like other rural counties in the state, lacks mental health professionals and psychiatric hospital beds. That means that when cops can't calm someone in a mental health crisis down, they may end up in jail. And Humphreys-Wadsworth says the mental health professionals that were there weren't communicating well with law enforcement. In Park County in 2012, between 50 and 80 people were treated for serious mental health issues against their will. That year, there were only around 200 such cases in the entire state. The system wasn't working. Really, there was a huge problem. We said, okay, let's fix it locally. What's the best thing that we can offer with what we have? So they tried crisis intervention training, but right away they ran into some problems. CIT in cities like Cheyenne and Casper ran 40 hours over five days. Cody and Powell's much smaller police departments couldn't leave the streets empty to do that. And in Park County, almost everyone was going to have to get the training for it to be effective. You know, in big cities, they have special teams who go out and do this. The challenge with small communities is there's only a couple officers on. They're, you are the team. Cody and Powell broke the training into multiple shorter sessions, and they incentivized it by giving continuing education credits, which law enforcement officers are required to earn. The last big barrier was convincing the cops that CIT was worth their time. Powell Police Chief Roy Eckert says the buy-in largely ended up coming from the fact that the same old strategies just weren't working. We would deal with the frustration as officers of going to the same house time and time and time again because people weren't getting the resources that they need. The Powell Police Department doesn't have hard numbers on how CIT has affected their policing. But Chief Eckert says since CIT, 
the number of cases labeled as mental health crisis-related has gone up by about 50%, even though the total number of calls has stayed the same. That means more cases are being recognized as related to mental health and not shuffled into other designations like public nuisance. Statewide Suicide Prevention Coordinator Teresa Humphreys-Wadsworth says she would like CIT to spread faster, but organizers can't pick up the pace alone. We are community-driven, so the decisions about what happens in community happens in community. Um, uh, Wyoming doesn't like being told what to do. Humphreys-Wadsworth says state organizers don't have the authority to mandate CIT. She says the way it's gone so far is law enforcement agencies send one officer to a training happening somewhere else. They go back and make it a case to their coworkers that it's worth doing. And eventually, that department starts planning the training as well. She says Douglas and Riverton are interested in starting CIT using the model developed in Park County, while Gillette just had its first training. But the process can take years. I've lost track of how many times I've actually been arrested, probably 17 at least. Ashley Overfield is the kind of person that has benefited from CIT training. She's 35, and her diagnosis of bipolar and schizoaffective disorder has contributed to frequent run-ins with the Cody police over the years, as well as an attempted suicide. Overfield has ended up in jail many times, and she says in the past, officers could be aggressive, which make her crises worse. But Overfield says there has been a real change in the last few years. Recently, Overfield's mom called the police to do a welfare check on her. Three officers showed up at the house. They were all very calm, very nice, very respectful, and it it made things a lot smoother, and I was more willing to just go with the flow. Crisis intervention training can do a lot to help someone in a mental health crisis. But the training is time-consuming, complicated to set up, and still isn't common across Wyoming. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. In stories of the American Revolution, the Civil War, and westward expansion, the lives and roles of women often go untold. Laramie author Jenny Lawrence is aiming to change that a bit with her new book, Soap Suds Row, The Bold Lives of Army Laundresses, 1802-1876. Thank you so much, Jenny, for joining us today. Certainly. First off, what exactly did an army laundress do? Army laundresses were the only women recognized by the U.S. Army from 1802 to 1876. Obviously, they did the laundry, and that unto itself was quite the chore because a lot of them made their own soap, um, rendered their own lye, washed, ironed. But in addition to that, most of them had families, some quite large families that they tended to. Some of them played the role of midwife. Um, They could wash for officers in their families also, and the officers and their families would pay separately from what the military paid. A lot of them also cooked for officers' wives, took care of livestock if they had a cow to milk or chickens to feed. And a lot of times, even though we hear a lot about the different classes in the military, if you're the only officer's wife on on a post and there's a laundress left behind also and the men are out on campaign, you're probably going to form some kind of friendship. And how did you come to this subject? Well, (laughs) it's a story. I had a friend who used to go in the elementary schools and present the role of the cavalry 
here in Wyoming. And he always wanted to do the women's role, but his wife was a school teacher and couldn't break away during her day to do it. And I was self-employed at that time, and she volunteered me and said, I bet Jenny would help you with that. So I started doing that, and it was like a dog with a bone. I just got extremely interested in these women and their life and what they went through and what they did and just kept going with it. There are many stories of different women in this book. Do you have a, a favorite story or, or a woman maybe that you particularly identify with? I liked Maggie Flood uh, just because her great-great-grandson, I believe, her great-grandson got a hold of me personally about her and gave me her story. So I really like her. Um, and she was stationed actually out here in Wyoming. She was. She was. She was in Cheyenne, Fort McKinney, Fort Laramie. So, yes. And she had a pretty darn tough life. Her first husband was perhaps not the nicest guy from what accounts I have. And he was busted up and down the ranks periodically and whatnot. Eventually, she did divorce him and marry an officer. And the interesting thing about the women who then married officers, it didn't happen very often. And they were not necessarily accepted by the other officers' wives. They were called halfway ladies, which I found very interesting. One of my favorite stories in reading the book was of a uh, a runaway slave couple, uh, Dabney, and mm -hmm. his wife, who was a laundress during the Civil War. Yes, yes. And they were invaluable as spies. She would hang the laundry for the officers and hang it in a certain order. And then he was able to take that information and relay it to his head officer. So they always knew what was going on. Like Maggie Flood out here in Cheyenne, these women were some of the first non-Native women in the West and in Wyoming at military outposts and forts. What do you think their legacy is? Just the fact that they were here and they broke the way for other women. These women followed with the troops and were just here. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that army laundresses even existed because the ones you always hear about, of course, are the officers' wives because they kept the journals and the diaries and they were the ones who had the more famous names like Elizabeth Custer, and they're the ones that made history. These women were kind of the silent history makers. Is that why why you wrote the book, is to shed a little bit of light? Yes, it is, as a matter of fact. These women needed to be recognized, and I knew how hard it was for me to find information about them. So as I kept gathering information and gathering information, eventually my friends encouraged me to write this book, and so I did. After 1876, the post of laundress was eliminated and civilians or soldiers took over doing the washing. What happened to those women? If their husbands were still in the military, they were allowed to finish out their term as a laundress along with, with his term as a soldier. So a lot of them did continue to work. Their accounts clear up into the 1880s of laundresses still receiving various benefits, be it food or housing or something like that. So they just weren't kicked out and, and said, bye, there you go. What can we learn from these women? I think these women at the time could have lived very independent lives if it was necessary. They were tough women, and like many women still are out here in the West. They were survivors. They did what they needed to do to get by and to care for their families. So, you know, we're talking about forgotten women and nobody, no role should ever be forgotten in history.
Jenny Lawrence is the author of the new book, Soap Suds Row, The Bold Lives of Army Laundresses. She'll be signing books at the Western Writers' Convention in Cheyenne Thursday, June 23rd, and at Fort Fetterman July 4th. Jenny, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. Coming up, we'll hear from a Sinar driver, one of the people who pound the pavement looking for places that sell cigarettes, and the return of the Wyoming Toad. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. Every few years, states conduct surveys to see whether stores are following federal laws that prohibit the sale of tobacco to minors. But who searches for all the places where kids might buy smokes? Well, they're called Sinar drivers. Well, I mean, Public Radio's Nathan Martin sent us an audio postcard from his time on the road. Do y'all sell cigarettes? <laughs> y'all have those e-cigarettes? Is there any place in Kirby to buy cigarettes? No. Closest place would be Thermop, and it's only like 12 miles away. There are only four places to buy cigarettes in all of Hot Springs County if you don't count liquor stores or bars. I know because it was my job to know. I was a Sinar driver. Sinar drivers scour the state looking for stores that sell tobacco. We don't use Google or Yelp. Let's go back down this way and then take a left on 8th Street. We drive the roads. We pound the pavement. We ask questions. It's good old-fashioned detective work, except we're not looking for clues. We're looking for smokes. Best place to get them is at the Douglas Grocery. They're the the cheapest. Yeah, I'm be going there myself in a bit. Mike Sinar, our project's namesake, was an Oklahoma congressman who opposed smoking. In 1992, Congress passed an amendment named for Sinar that aimed to prevent underage smoking. Now, I was wondering if uh, minors can come in here. In order to receive federal funds for substance abuse programs, states must take measures to stop kids from getting their hands on tobacco products. It's the Sinar driver's job to document where kids might try to get them. Closest bet is probably going to be the grocery store, actually um, the gas station. That's how I ended up on a sunny afternoon in May, standing on a dirt road, trying to gauge whether our rental sedan would make it through the mud hole up ahead. My colleague and I had taken our boss's instructions literally. Search every road on the map for tobacco retailers. Where are we? Well, it's not working right now. Okay. Apparently, our map was more detailed than it needed to be. It led us to a remote corner of Fremont County where the pavement turned to dirt among scattered ranches and sagebrush. Not a smoke shop in sight. Backtracking seemed like a waste of time, though, so we went forth. Every couple of miles, we had to stop to scout a mud hole. Antelope looked on in what I took as vague amusement. I applied for the Sinar job because it gave me a weird excuse to explore the state. I'd never been to Kirby, for instance, where the Wyoming Whiskey Distillery is located, but no cigarette stores. I'd never been to Hartville, either, home of Wyoming's oldest bar, but again, no tobacco shops. I rarely stay in hotels, so it was a treat to check into the Holiday Lodge in Lander, which boasts what must be the state's most incredible neon sign, or into the Thermopolis Days Inn, which displays hundreds of exotic animal mounts in its safari club. There I shot pool with a Houston oil man, to whom I explained my job. He replied, well, during lean times, that seems like a program we could probably cut. Did they have everything? Or? No, no e-cigs. He was pretty confused about that. He's definitely suspicious. Yeah. He thinks we're up to something. I felt uncomfortable working for the tobacco police. 
The last thing I want is for some poor store clerk to lose her job because of a Sinar sting operation that I, even in a small way, helped facilitate. Maybe the war on tobacco is righteous, since smoking costs so much in terms of suffering and healthcare spending. But it also seems aligned with efforts to transform the world into one where pleasure and autonomy are expendable aspects of life, and where everyone is uptight about safety and fitness. Where does person buy cigarettes in East Thermopolis? Nah, nowhere. Still, I was sad when the job was done. The last morning, we drove south out of Douglas past empty coal trains. I pulled a baggie of Morel mushrooms from my jacket. A stranger had picked them from a nearby creek and given us some the night before while we were all having drinks at the White Wolf Saloon. Douglas does not have an indoor smoking ban, but my jacket smelled fresh. I put its fabric up to my nose and inhaled. I recalled, perhaps with a tiny bit of appreciation, that the White Wolf Saloon is smoke-free. The ghost of Mike Sinar smiled. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Nathan Martin. The Buford Ranch Pond is barely more than a puddle on the Laramie Plains, but it happens to be critical habitat for the Wyoming toad. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released over 900 of these endangered toads earlier this month. Some say the Wyoming toad is the most endangered amphibian in North America. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports. On the shore, next to the Buford Ranch Pond, clear plastic tubs sit in stacks with little ordinary-looking brown speckled toads visible inside, climbing the walls, trying to escape. And escape is exactly what a crowd of people, private landowners, conservation groups, and federal and state agencies have all gathered here today to help the toads do. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service technician Elizabeth Mack passes out latex gloves and instructions. You know, all you have to do is open up the tub and very gently take the toad and set it on the ground. Don't step on them. And don't step on them. The crowd sets out to three separate release areas, a private ranch across the highway, the Mortensen Lake National Wildlife Refuge, where the last of the toad population was discovered, and this small pond owned by the Buford Foundation, an environmental education group. The crowd walks out onto the marsh, and Mac opens one of the tubs. Five-year-old Letty Newman peers in. And they do hop pretty crazy. That's because they were bred in captivity at a fish hatchery in Saratoga. And this is their first encounter with their natural habitat. Even before their decline, they only existed in the Laramie Basin. The hope is after today, they'll repopulate the area. With gloved hands, we begin scooping toads and placing them gently in the mud and grass. Yeah, we'll just let one go. And one makes a dash for the water and swims off. You have a really oh, nice right. frog kick, you know, yeah. <laughs> or toad kick, as you <laughs> That's my dad, Jay, with the bad puns. Technically, this isn't the first time Fish and Wildlife have released Wyoming toads. Fish and Aquatic Conservation Director Greg Gerlick says it is the first time they've raised them to adulthood first. They've stocked many, many thousands of tadpoles over a long period of time, and they've had very low success. Gerlick says tadpoles didn't make it because these toads are a very sensitive species, and they often end up the canary in the coal mine for environmental threats. They're very clear indicator species of things that are going on in the environment. Pesticides have an easy transport through amphibian skin. Pesticides like those used in agriculture or to kill mosquitoes. Among the crowd are a few 
old toaders, as everyone calls them, people who've been studying this little toad for decades. It was UW zoology and physiology professor Bill Gern who tagged along with the late amphibian biologist George Baxter in search of the toad. So in the spring of 1980, George and I started going to his favorite haunts to try to find toads, and we couldn't. And he became very puzzled at that time. He said, well, they used to be everywhere, and we couldn't find them anywhere. Gern says the toad used to be so common, ranchers found them in their cowboy boots. We walked the entire length of the Big Laramie from basically from Woods Landing to town and never found them. And so, it, you know, it was very clear that they had disappeared. A fisherman eventually found some on Mortensen Lake. The Fish and Wildlife rounded up the last 300 toads there and put them all in captivity. And that's when the search for what was killing them began. They found that these toads were dying of a fungus infection, and that was big news. The chytrid fungus, to be exact, an infection killing amphibians worldwide. But pesticides and modern irrigation methods likely whittled down their numbers, too. Across the highway, rancher and retired Fish and Wildlife employee Fred Lindsay released 300 toads on his land today, too. He says he uses old-fashioned flood irrigation that spreads out shallow water among willows. Perfect for Wyoming toads. We have, at times, kept some of the irrigation water flowing longer than we normally would. And it pushes haying back just a little bit, but that's okay. That's okay. But Lindsay says the Wyoming toad's ideal habitat is also ideal ranch land, which means to bring them back, they'll have to thrive on private land. That's where uh, people homestead it, and that's where people raise their cattle in the winter and fed them in the winter. And it, it really means that the uh, agencies have got to work with private landowners. Lindsay says he knows a lot of landowners worry that when you have an endangered species on your property, the feds will butt in on your business. He hasn't had that problem. We sign what's called a safe harbor agreement. And basically what that means is during normal operations, if we were to run over a toad or step on a toad, we wouldn't go to federal prison. After today, Lindsay looks forward to hearing the sound of Wyoming toads breeding on his land. Just one of many species he hosts here. Birds and toads and moose and uh, deer. I've heard sandhill cranes too. Oh yes. They're probably down there walking out as we speak, looking for toads to eat. Right, right. <laughs> they get a feast. Yeah, I'm sure they get some, you know, but uh, what the heck, the tough ones survive. And with every single one of those 900 toads embedded with a tracking chip, Fish and Wildlife will be able to keep a very close eye on just how many do survive. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed parts of the program or want to hear it again, simply go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org and click on Open Spaces. There you can hear the whole show or individual segments. While you're there, you can sign up for our podcast on the web or through iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also always enjoy hearing comments about the show, and we encourage you to send us ideas for future segments or interviews. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.